Father, we thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you for uh, Christ who has risen from the dead and that we can celebrate his life and our life in him on this day. We pray that you would give us rest this day as we um, come before you. We pray that you prepare our hearts to receive and hear your word, uh, both in this class and in the uh, hour to come in worship. We pray that uh, we would not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. Uh, Please uh, condescend to us and be with us by your Holy Spirit, uh, that we may know his presence and be changed uh, through him. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As always, I want to summarize the entire class in five minutes, and then we'll jump into the new material. Thankfully, for the summary of the class, you have this handy-dandy chart, which is really uh, my attempt to summarize the, the themes of the biblical narrative using um, the uh, narrative uh, superplot, creation, fall, redemption. Um, the scriptures come to us as fundamentally a story. Scriptures aren't just a, a compilation of proof texts for disparate ideas that um, we just pick from, kind of like from a grab bag, but there's, there's a cohesion to the whole thing, and they're going in a direction. And that fundamental direction uh, is the redemption of the entire world in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Paul summarizes the plan for the whole world in Ephesians 1, verse 10. Christ is the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. But how do we get there? So that's where we're going. But the rest of the Bible uh, up to uh, the end is the drama of creation, fall, redemption. God created man in his image, and we've used uh, shorthand for image of God. Uh, this is from Herman, Herman Bavink, but uh, man is the finite impression of the infinite God. Uh, the, the whole of God is, is um, imaged in man. Um, and so we're not finite, but in a, we're not infinite, but in a finite way, we reflect God's character and his, his being. And we've talked throughout this class about what is the image of God applied? What does it look like? And the image of God applied is really... Um, the definition of dominion that we've, we've talked about in this class. And here it's in, the, in this uh, creation column. Uh, we were blessed by God. We reflected His glory as His image. And what that looks like applied is uh, we're to, we are uh, vessels of honor. We're the, we're the crown of creation. We're to rule all of creation in that place of dignity. Uh, but we're also, uh, even though we have that dignity fully intact, by we I mean Adam, uh, the project wasn't complete, so to speak. God's glory was located in the garden, and man was to subdue that portion of the world, but the command was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the entire earth. And so there was a potential to this glory. It was to spread and fill all the earth. And so we see Isaiah talking about the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That was the grand design uh, for man, and, and this wasn't just a vision, it was his duty, it was his responsibility. Man was created under law in the garden. Uh, we were, uh, that law uh, was reflected in, in the dominion mandate and also reflected uh, and expressed in the command for man not to eat from the truth, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we were to hang on God's every word. We were, we were made in a position uh, 
of taking our being, not from ourselves, not creating it out of thin air, but who we were uh, and our duty to be who we were supposed to be is, is from God under his law. And we didn't do these things as isolated creatures. Um, man was to exist in community, both with man and the woman. They were to have children, but also man with God. God uh, walked with man in the garden, and man was to do these things in God and through God and in fellowship with him. Uh, the project of humanity was never something we were meant to do by ourselves. God did not, as the deists would say, just um, give, sprinkle some spiritual pixie dust over us of life or wind us up like a, like a clock or a doll and um, we go on our merry way. No, that's, that's a false view of, of our nature. We were made to be uh, alive through God. And then this happened in a place. We were made physical creatures in a real place in real time. And that place where we dwelt with God was the Garden of Eden. That was our home. And that was the place where heaven and earth met, uh, where, we, where we as the finite creatures had communion with the infinite God. Well, the fall happened. Uh, we rejected uh, this vision, this vocation, if you will, to be uh, priest kings over all creation. We fell and we were cursed. Uh, our glory was, was diminished. Uh, the image of God was defaced in us. We're a bombed out cathedral. We're a priceless work of art with splattered paint and tomato juice all over it. Um, and we experience the converse of, of image of God applied. Instead of honor, we experience shame. Instead of potential, we're powerless to realize our potential. This is all in the chart um, uh, that's available for you at the front there. Uh, Instead of fulfilling our responsibility, we fail, and so we experience guilt, the anticipation of judgment. Instead of communion with God, we're alienated from Him, and instead of being at home, we're exiled and pushed out of the garden. And we've talked for the last couple of weeks about, okay, now what? What's the human response to this predicament in a post-fallen world? And fundamentally, humans respond to their cursed state apart from grace. We're going to talk about grace today. Apart from grace, we... Bark on the project of fake dominion. Fake dominion. There's lots of, you could call this a false religion. You could call it idolatry. You could call it seeking a solution to the fallen state apart from God's grace is what I've, I've called fake dominion. And you see it here. And, and so we, we uh, act out of pride. We act out of self-power. Uh, we want to find the source of our energy, uh, not through God, not in His vision for us, but in our own will, in our own might and strength. Uh, we don't know how to deal with our guilt in any final sense. We just try to appease the gods. Or if we're our own god, we appease ourselves, feed our appetites, satiate our own desires to give us a little bit of peace. Um, instead of communing with one another, uh, we oppress one another. We just, most of human relationships are just uh, a truce among undeclared warfare, among people, right? And if people get out of line, we find ways to manipulate and uh, be passive-aggressive, you know, Oppression takes many forms. Uh, some people can oppress others without lifting a finger. If you've ever been in a, a, a well, I'm sure you use your imagination. Uh, there's lots of ways we can get under each other's skin to try to control one another. And ultimately, um, the biblical, one of the many biblical pictures for this project of self-salvation uh, from pride through human means is the idea of city building. Cain, uh, rejecting God goes way east, away from the garden, and builds a city. And uh, we're going to spend more time today 
with Ham's grandson, Nimrod. Ham is cursed, we're going to read about today. And Nimrod continues this project of building Babylon, building all the great civilizations of the east. And, um, and these cities, and Babylon becomes the archetypal city, the archetypal symbol of, of the project of man's glory uh, conquering um, and ruling and trying to, in one sense, be a fake Eden, a fake place where we can find order amidst the chaos that uh, the fall uh, brought about. And that's where we are. Last week we talked about three types of fake dominion, this kind of city-building dominion. We also talked about, I'm still trying to think of a good term for this, but I think a better term than what I said last week is vicarious dominion. We want a piece of the fruit of God's blessed state, of the image of God and the glory of it. And so we, we extract this piece of fruit and we manufacture it in all in wrong ways. Uh, and we try to enjoy this blessing apart from God's grace and apart from the context that he's uh, made us to experience that. So one example of that is video games. You experience fake conquest, fake dominion. You get to experience all the glory of conquering uh, pixel armies without having to lift a finger uh, and use real muscles, except your, your, your thumbs. You know, there's, I guess there's some effort exerted there. Uh, pornography is another example. You get a very small sliver of physical sensation and pleasure, but totally detached from the marriage relationship, totally detached from um, um, sex as being the means by which uh, children are born and brought into this world, and totally detached from actual physical uh, contact with a real person. We could go on and on about these, these fake examples, but that's vicarious dominion. And there's also uh, pretend dominion, which unfortunately is on the rise today and is on the rise in any um, culture that is experiencing a withdrawal of common grace, where we take our fallen state, and instead of mourning over the tragedy of our condition, we just say, well, my pathetic condition is actually good. Uh, my sinful desires are actually good. I'm going to build my identity around uh, a perverse idea, and I'll just force everyone to accept that as good. And so we call good evil and evil good, as Isaiah 2 says. Um, and that's, that's where we're at today. So today, uh, we're going to uh, go back up. We've, 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 uh, earlier, we talked about creation, fall, redemption. It's not just a linear uh, narrative. It's a uh, there's a fall, right? We're in this valley, and it gets really bad, but then redemption brings us back up, and we exceed our starting point. So the glory of heaven is even greater than where we started out with. Um, so we've been at the bottom here for a while, so now we're going we're gonna to start going back up. So hopefully uh, some of you are breathing a sigh of relief as you've been under the weight of the law for, for three weeks. Uh, may we find grace. So narratively, where does that put us? So uh, we left off, I think, with Cain was the last story we talked about, and so now uh, we get to uh, Noah. And uh, to really streamline our discussion today, because we have so much to talk about, there's another piece of, uh, the other side of your handout has this chart, and you're all going to be studying this chart for the next five minutes, so before you put your heads down and look at the chart, if you could... Look up a little bit, and we'll uh, <clears throat> we'll talk about it, and then we'll then we'll go back down. But really, um, 
it's a, it's a beautiful passage, and Genesis is so brilliantly put together, and uh, there's so much depth to it. It's, I mean, you could spend your whole lifetime reading it, and you wouldn't plumb the depths. But one key, I think, to understanding what is God up to with grace is to understand that Genesis is, is a dis- uh, Genesis. The flood story is a disintegration of the entire world and a remaking of it under grace. Um, and so all of life after the flood <clears throat> is now life lived under the rainbow. Okay, that's, that's, that, those two sentences are this whole class. If you don't take anything from this class, it's after the flood, we have everything we had before the flood, but now it's under grace, under the rainbow. Okay? So uh, now you're probably thinking, well, uh, how does that fit with... Abraham, how does that fit with Jesus? How does that fit with... And, and I, I, those are great questions, and I don't have 36 weeks to talk through it all with you, but just keep reading your Bible, and you'll get to the answers. Um, and, and really, just a footnote to what I'm saying. I mean, really, I mean, all we've done the past nine weeks or, no, seven weeks is just uh, really think about these stories and really think about the Bible. And there's really no substitute for just reading the Bible over and over again. I can't... I can't at the end of the day, we can't say it better than the Bible... Um, and our attempts to systematize or summarize are just uh, fumbling through the pages, so to speak. So just keep reading the Bible and uh, keep studying. Okay, so after the flood, you get everything you had before, but now it's under grace. So that's where we're going, and so let's, uh, let's walk through uh, the story to get there. And before we get to this chart, I want to spend some time in Genesis 6 to understand why was the flood necessary, why did God bring about the flood. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, and we will read um, the first 14 verses. Read the first 14 verses. So can I get two volunteers, one person to read Genesis Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and then Genesis 6, 9 through... 14. Go for it, Dana. Which one do you want first? Okay, 9 to 14. Who's got the first part? Adam. Genesis 6 1. Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled. 
Very good. So, also, if you're, uh, again, another footnote to our discussion today, uh, the chapter headings in the Bible don't always correspond to the literary, the natural literary breaks, right? So, um, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Uh, Genesis has 10 phrases like that. There's 10 phrases. These are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of uh, Terah, Abram's father. And so that would be the place to start. And so when you read Genesis 6, it's kind of the conclusion of a previous section. And then Genesis 9 becomes kind of the next phase. Um, so when you read Genesis 6, it's not so much a beginning as much as the conclusion to the previous section. And so, again, literarily speaking, this is the conclusion of, of, of the fall, so to speak. That there were, the fall set us on a trajectory, and history develops, and, and this, is, this is the end of that. And so this is the problem that God's going to deal with now in, in the next uh, section marked by, by Noah. So what is the problem, so to speak? So there's an event, an event that happens um, at the beginning of Genesis 6. And what's that event that kind of marks a shift in how, kind of almost like forces God's hand, I don't like that term, but I'm not thinking of a better phrase, but kind of things come to a head. Maybe that's a better way to put it. Things come to a head because of what event? Between who? Yes. I don't know what that means. I, 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 there's a lot of debate about who the sons of God are and the daughters of men and what the result is in the Nephilim. And I, uh, that's a very interesting question. But the point of it, uh, ultimately, is that some line was crossed here. Um, now, some people think this is actual demons that came and impregnated uh, women. Uh, I think most Reformed folks would say this is really the sons of God, meaning the sons of the line of, of, of Shem, not Shem, Seth, um, starting to lose faithfulness to God. Um, I think that's probably a more natural reading given that it comes right after the genealogy of, of Seth. Um, either way, so, some line's been crossed, and we're getting into extreme corruption here. That um, Whether it's somehow the bloodline of humanity's been polluted, or the faithful line of God's people who call out to him amidst the people of Cain is now becoming polluted. We're entering danger zone here. Extreme danger. There, there is, um, there's no longer faithfulness and righteousness uh, on, on the earth, except for one family. So, um, and what's that? That, I think, explains uh, verse 3. So, what's, what's going on in verse 3? What do you think this means when God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever? Why is this God's response to um, this red line being crossed? Thoughts on that? What is this, in other words, what does the Spirit of God abiding in man have to do with what's gone on with humanity up to this point? Uh, 
Yeah, that's, there you, that, that's one way to put it, exactly. And I think that begs the question, what's, what's grace? And what does that have to do with God's spirit? Why, why, did, why did the spirit of God make, in your mind, common grace? To stay on you, Mike, what are you thinking? Yes. Okay. Why is that? Why does it get worse when God withdraws? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, think back to earlier we talked about how was man created in the first place? When he was dust of the earth and God formed him, what, what made him a living being? What did God do? He breathed upon him. Right. Man's very being is contingent upon God's spirit um, sustaining him. Uh, and this is, this is a common grace thing. You don't need to be a Christian to understand that you require supernatural help to live. Why do I say that? Acts 17, Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. But he's quoting a pagan when he says that. In Acts 17, he's quoting a pagan. And then he quotes another pagan and said, we are all his offspring. Again, that's a pagan phrase. This is, um, this is something that um, we should all know um, by, by uh, natural revelation, that we, we are not sufficient in our own might to sustain our, our very life. And, um, and I think what that means is, um, we think about, you, you said common grace, God's withdrawing his common grace. You're kind of jumping ahead which is great, but grace, in, in, we confess that grace is not a substance, it's primarily presence. It's God's presence with us. Um, you heard Aaron Murray talk about last uh, Sunday night uh, different views in Christendom about the Lord's Supper and how people understand uh, the Lord's Supper, and, and a historically Catholic view has viewed the Lord's Supper as more of a kind of a mechanism by which uh, grace is um, imparted to people who partake of the elements. It's more a mechanical, uh, the Lord's Supper in that sense is like a vehicle where uh, spiritual gasoline is poured in and then uh, you're kind of charged with grace, so to speak, or, um, or you're a person who takes in physical food and you're now energized to act. Uh, refor- uh, Protestants um, and the orthodox position that, that we confess is that grace uh, is imparted to us by the presence of the Holy Spirit um, in the elements, not as a mechanical, like, you know, ingesting grace, but the Lord uses these, these symbols and means uh, to communicate grace to us uh, primarily by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, this is what God's referring to in in Genesis chapter 3, is my spirit is not going to be with man because he's crossed a red line. And we shouldn't be surprised that we got to this point because God promised that if you uh, eat of the fruit of of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And the only reason man has not died, uh, that race hasn't been extinguished uh, up to this point, has been God's grace. God's spirit... Uh, dwelling uh, in some limited way with man. Not the full way that it was in the garden, but in, in a very real way. And so this is being withdrawn. So let's talk, any questions about that? Any, any thoughts about that? 
Just to put a capstone on that, let me um, read Charles Hodge here. Charles Hodge, so when I talk about common grace, my sources are are, uh, John Calvin, Abraham Kuyper, and Charles Hodge. Those are the three people I'm channeling here. So if you want to delve into this more, uh, go go read those guys on common grace. Um, Charles Hodge says, The Spirit of God is the principle of spiritual as well as natural life. What God threatened in Genesis uh, 6-3 was to withdraw his spirit from men. The spirit is represented as striving with the wicked and with all men, and they're charged with resisting, grieving, vexing, and quenching his operations. As God is everywhere present in the material world, guiding its operations according to the laws of nature, so he is everywhere present in the minds of men as the spirit of truth and goodness operating according to the laws of their free moral agency, inclining them to good and restraining them from evil. <clears throat> so again, just to summarize, it, well, he just summarized what we just said. God, men live and move and have their being because God's spirit strives with them still, even in their fallen state. And when he withdraws his presence completely, it's over. <laughs> You're dead. You're, it's it's, it's uh, no more. And we see uh, this complete withdrawal reflected in uh, Genesis 6-5. So put your finger on Genesis 6-5 and just briefly flip over to Genesis 8-21. And I'm going to read the two verses and then you tell me how they're different. Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And then Genesis 8, 21, uh, the second part, God, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Similar phrases, but what's different between those two? Yeah, yeah, God's going to refrain from, uh, men's still wicked in both contexts, but there's a degree of wickedness that's different. Um, how is the wickedness of men described? What are some of the adverbs and adjectives uh, that are used in Genesis 6, verse 5? Continually, all the time. That's something else that's not in 8.21. What else? Only, right, only evil continually. And then one more, a little earlier. Every, Every, right. Every intention is only evil uh, continually. So there's this, um, now, uh, again, how do you reconcile this with total depravity? I'm not not saying total depravity isn't that everything you do is only and thoroughly evil. It's that everything you do is tainted by, by sin and you cannot do anything that is not tainted by sin. That's total depravity. But there is, there is a degree of depravity here that's being talked about. Extreme. 
Um, and so, what's the primary fruit of this um, uh, extreme corruption? It's probably a better way to put it. Extreme corruption. What's the fruit of it? Starts with a V. Violence. Violence. Yeah, vi- violence is the uh, the prototypical fruit of of this state. It's um, and wh- why do you think that is? Why 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 do you think violence, as opposed to other sins, might be singled out here? Yeah, Adam. Hmm. Yeah, they're they're doing violence to God's image, right? Yeah, Mike. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's an expression of other sins too that that are um, kind of not just hating God's image, but also how do I get what I want? I got to eliminate the competition, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Right. Yes, yeah. Those are all good. I'd also add to that, I mean, think about what man's vocation was supposed to be in the garden. It was cultivating, it was bringing forth life, it was building up, and it was producing children. Violence, uh, Hamas, in the, uh, in the, in the Hebrew, um, it's, it's a reversal of that process. Instead of producing life, you're killing life. Instead of cultivating, you're destroying. And so it's just, just think of everything promised in the garden, complete opposite direction. So um, God says he's going to destroy it all. And um, <clears throat> now, there's so much we could say here. Um, I mean, this is the fundamental narrative of all of history, Right? All of history at some point is going to reach its climax where um, you're going to have God's people on one side, you're going to have the world that has rejected him, and God is going to destroy, um, destroy the earth. And we see in the New Testament um, the description of this time where God knows what he's going to do. He's then called Noah, and I think 1 Peter uh, chapter 3, um, where God was patient as in the days of Noah. Right? God, God knows people have crossed the line, and the reason he's waiting, and the reason the flood doesn't happen right at the end of, of, of Genesis 6, uh, verse 8, or 6, verse 7, is God wants to rescue uh, a remnant out of, out of the earth. And so Noah becomes the, the prototype of the church. He becomes the prototype of the elect. He becomes the prototype of all who are faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that's, that's really the main message of 1 Peter is, um, you know, the Lord's patient with the world. They're under his judgment. God's waiting. But he's patient because he wants all men to come to repentance. So that's not the direction we're going to go in today, so to speak, but just it's there. I want to, I want to, I want us to be aware of it um, 
because God is going to um, rescue Noah and his family out of this condition. Um, But I want to focus not just on um, that restoration and how it continues to build throughout the Bible with Abraham and and David and God's covenants and then with Christ and the church. Um, I want to talk about um, the disintegration of the natural order and then God reestablishing the natural order. Because that's, in one sense, the foundation for the, for the rest of um, that, that key story of, of God rescuing a people and restoring them. So uh, there's yeah, so much to talk about, but I want to I focus our energies on God uh, tearing down the created order and then building it back up, and how does he do that? Does that make sense? That's where we're going. And for that, I want to bring your attention to this chart, uh, Genesis 1 through 11. And the point of, the point of giving you this chart is to help you see that in the text itself, and at a, stru- a literary structural level, there is a, a recreation going on with the flood. God, God comes to Noah. They're the one family in the whole world that hasn't uh, experienced this total corruption. And God rescues them, and he keeps them safe in this ark while he destroys the world and recreates it. Right? Again, there's, that's the vision of the final judgment. God's going to rescue the, ch- the church. He's going to preserve them while the whole world is undone. And he's going to remake all the whole cosmos. It's the new heavens and new earths. And we're going to emerge in the new heavens and new earths as a new humanity. And it's going to be glorious. So, we get a taste of that here. But, uh, but the point is, Noah's safe in the ark. What's going on outside the ark? That's a better way to put it. What's going on outside the ark? This is what's going on outside the ark. Um, and you see these parallels here. Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Well, after the floods came, uh, the waters prevailed above the mountains. Genesis 7.20, all flesh died, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. We're in the same spot, in other words. Where we started in Genesis 1.2 is now where we start again in Genesis 7.20. And we see this, uh, the apostles understood this, 2 Peter 3.5-6 through 6, um, says, I'll read it for you. For they, the wicked, overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Okay, so, so this is... This idea of all of creation starting at this point where the earth is covered in water is the you know, essential ancient Near Eastern understanding of the origin of, of, uh, of the earth. Does that make sense? So we're, get, we're getting back to this point, this back to this starting point. And now that we're back at the starting point, then what happens? Well, in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Genesis 8.1, God made a wind to blow over the earth. And this wind, um, spirit, breath, it's the same, uh, Andrew, is it the same Hebrew word? Is it ruah? Yeah, it's ruah in both, uh, in both the spirit of God, the ruah of God, and then God made a ruah to blow over the earth. Um, and, then you, and then you see slowly as the waters recede, you see a process that mirrors the days of creation. And so uh, the heavens are closed, so it's not raining anymore. They can see the sky again. Um, 
God's giving light and darkness again. God's separating the waters from the waters on day two. He separates the waters beneath from the waters above. Um, and then day three, uh, we see God separating water from uh, the land. And in Genesis 8.3, we see the waters receding from the earth again. And then uh, this uh, a freshly picked olive tree is, is picked by a bird that gets sent out. So there's, there's land appearing again. And uh, day four, I'm not sure about this one. Someone who's, uh, you know, spent more time could maybe come up with a better parallel to God creating celestial objects. Um, ark resting on top of the mountains of Ararat. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Um, biblical parallelism doesn't, it's not, it's not mechanical in that sense always. Um, you're getting the gist of it here. Anyway, day five, creation of birds and fish. God sends out a raven and a dove. Again, the raven and the dove leaving the ark, you know, c- coming in back into the world. Day six, here's the key here. And uh, God creates the animals. He proclaims blessing. Animals and humans, God proclaims blessing upon them and gives the creation mandates. And that's essentially what we see from Genesis 8, 13 through Genesis 9, 7. And so just, just think about this. Think God's recreating the world as... Uh, at this point, and then with that frame of mind, read Genesis 8, um, 15, right? And, and read this verse like you're back in Genesis 1, right? H- how, does, how does creation happen in Genesis 1? And God said, let there be light. And God said, you know, let the earth produce this. Well, Genesis eight fifteen. then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh. Right? It's a new, it's a new creation. Right? It's, it's the, same, uh, the same cadence that we had in, in Genesis 1 is being lived out again here. New creation's happening. And so uh, we shouldn't be surprised that we get to Genesis uh, 8.20, through, to Genesis 9, really the whole chapter of Genesis 9, no, no, first part of Genesis 9. And it's like we're back in Genesis 2 with all the blessings and the dominion mandate. And this should be all familiar to us. Again, God's recreating the world, but now it's under, it's under grace. Okay. Um, so let's stop there. That, that's the project. Everything, the rest of the chart is um, the fall. <laughs> Same way we get the world recreated under grace, uh, we have another fall from grace uh, after that. Uh, real quick, uh, Noah gets out, he builds a vineyard, uh, he drinks the wine, he gets drunk, and he's naked and drunk. And um, he, you know, he's in a garden, he eats fruit, eating the fruit has really bad consequences, and he's shamed. And uh, his shame is exposed by his son, um, and again, there's all sorts of innuendo here. I'm not going to get into what actually went on here, but it's, it's, it's a fall. It's, it's Noah as the blameless man who's upright in his generation, who is the prototype of, of uh, leading the church uh, through the waters of judgment. He's not the promised seed who's going to bring us all the way back to the garden. That's what's being talked about. And we have another cur- We have more curses and more promises. And so the son who... Um, exposed his father's nakedness, is cursed. Ham is cursed. And again, the cursed son, his son, or grandson, Nimrod, is the one that builds the cities, just like Cain did.
But then there's a promise also, a blessing on uh, uh, Shem and Japheth who cover their father's nakedness. And Shem is going to be the one who carries forward the promised line uh, that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15, of a, a, a seed who would, who would crush the, uh, the head of the serpent. Um, and so Shem is going to be exalted. He's going to crush Ham's descendants, and uh, Japheth will dwell in his tents as well. So we have this same cursing and blessing uh, paralleled as well. And then again, we see the projects of the cursed sons kind of coming to their fruition. Um, and uh, I'm going to skip this common grace part about Cain's sons developing livestock industry, music, and uh, metallurgy. We'll come back to that. But then we get um, genealogies of the promised seed kind of are the bookends to this each section. You have a genealogy of the promised seed, the genealogy of uh, Seth in Genesis 5. And in Genesis 10, Genesis 11, 10 to 32, you have the genealogy of, of Shem. And both of these genealogies build towards the covenant head. Um, the line of Seth built to Noah. The line of Shem builds to um, Abram. So we have, again, a, uh, a recapitulation, a rehash, a retelling of the, of the creation. We also have a retelling of the fall, and then we have a rehash of the setup for a movement, uh, a plot development in God's plan of redemption. You tracking me? There's a lot there. So just, I really encourage you, you know, use this chart um, as a springboard to your own studies of the scripture. Uh, just marinate in these parallels. They're, they're so rich. Um, but something, something big is going on here, Right? Um, God is setting the stage for uh, redemption in each case. And uh, so that's, that's Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, before we move on to talk about what this recapitulation or retelling of the dominion mandate is, uh, any thoughts or questions just about that story? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. There's a, grace, in one sense, happened at the moment Adam sinned. The moment Adam sinned, he should have died right away. The fact that he didn't die right away is God's grace. And God, God demonstrates that grace by covering him with, with, the, uh, with the animal skin. So grace is certainly present before the flood. What we have in Genesis 9, and then the covenant with Noah, um, is is. It's God cementing that grace. It's God, it's God confirming that grace. And, and God um, covenanting with creation um, to, to, to make sure that we know it's not going to pass away. So it's not that grace didn't exist before. It's that the covenant, God, God binding himself to preserve this world until the end um, uh, doesn't come until Genesis 9. Yes? Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Right. Right, exactly. And it's, it's free. It's free. There's nothing that, I mean, there's nothing that man does to really merit this grace. I mean, and to drive it even home, this, this covenant is made with the animals as well. It says um, in chapter 9, verse... Fifteen, chapter nine, verse 10, fifteen. I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. Every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth, and that's why in uh, Genesis nine, there's in, there's instructions about the consequences for animals killing people. God's addressing animals. Um, this is a covenant with all creation. That the and, and also at the end of uh, Genesis eight. What's God going to promise to do? Never again will I strike down every living creature as I have done. He didn't just strike down humans. He struck down all the animals that didn't make it into the ark. Right? And then what's he promised to do? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. These are, these are operations of the created order, not just what people do. I can't control the weather. <laughs> I can't control uh, what makes plants grow. I can... You know, we're, we're farmers, we can work around the edges, but we're totally dependent upon the created order operating with regularity. And so that just brings us to, I think, just the main point of, in our last 10 minutes here, of what's, what is this grace that, you know, what is the Spirit of God doing as He abides with all of creation? Um, in His grace, He's preserving us, He's, he's keeping us going. Everything we have is, is from God. And again, this is made with all of creation, all of the animals, even the lost. This is, this is made with the lost and with, with, um, with the elect. So again, just to preview where we're going, the rest of this class is this preserves. This covenant does not bring us back into the garden. That's, that's what Abram gets us, Right? That's where Christ gets us. But we would never have the opportunity. Uh, in other words, Abram would never have the opportunity to enter into uh, the covenant of grace with God if God had not first sustained his life and his family through common grace. right? And so at this point in the biblical narrative, God resets all the cosmos and we're all in the same spot. We're all in the same spot under the rainbow. And we're all going to live long enough to be accountable to God and to have a have an. Uh, uh, I don't want to go in that direction. Sorry, I, my train of thought went one way, and I want to correct it. Um, God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance. We'll just use the words of First Peter, right? <laughs> this why does God keep the world going despite people cursing Him every day? His grace is made to lead us to repentance, to lead us to the promises that will bring us back, not just to a place of being preserved, but back to full restoration, right? It's not enough just to not die for 80 years, right? We need to live forever, right? And that's what, that's what Abram's story is going get, to get us to, okay? But as glorious as that is, I don't want us to miss common grace because I think a lot of times we jump to Abraham we jump to particular grace or redemptive grace 
and we overlook that common grace is real. It's extremely real. It is you are, you are here breathing today because of common grace. If you drove a car today, that car was put together because God gave people wisdom and insight to manipulate metals and, and switches to put something together. If you had breakfast today, the lost people who worked in the factories to put together your cereal, they are being sustained by common grace, right? Our preacher today, if he's preaching, like the people who made his clothes, the people who made his food, the people who printed, who made the paper on which his Bible was written, this is all common grace, okay? Um, there are many, I mean, so it just goes on and on. But um, so, uh, ran out of steam there at the end there. I had some more thoughts, but uh, it, that's probably all that needs to be said on that. I, any, I want to read just a couple of... Uh, just a couple of quotes to confirm this idea of common grace. Calvin says, um, Grace, common grace, does not purge our sin, yet dwells within us. Common grace doesn't purge sin, but it dwells within us. Abraham Kuyper says, um, Outside the church, grace operates among pagans in the midst of the world. This grace is not an everlasting grace nor a saving grace, but a temporal grace for the restraint of ruin that lurks within. Then Charles Hodge says, by common grace is meant the influence of the Spirit. Again, it's this idea, grace is God's presence, fundamentally. The influence of the Spirit, which in a greater or lesser measure is granted to all who hear the truth. Greater or lesser measure. There's people that experience so much common grace and are never saved. But, but they are just, they got a lot of wisdom. They got their life put together. And you can learn a lot from these people. These people are better than me. Uh, I mean, some, I pass these books around um, as examples of, you know, just common grace. Those are good common grace books. If you want to experience some common grace, you can read those books. Tons of other books. Um, I uh, was listening to uh, a lecture on Plato and his republic, um, and the Greek, Greek philosophers. And there was so much common grace in how they understood um, human nature, how they understood government, and much of the blessings that we have in this country are there because our founding fathers read those books and incorporated some of those principles uh, into how our, our country operates. And the glory of the wisdom that the Greeks had, the glory that... Um, Confucius had, the glory that Gandhi has, I mean, in being able to, again, read about Gandhi's life, and a Hindu, a pagan, and yet, he took down a whole empire by the sheer force of his example of, of forgiveness and uh, civil disobedience and protest against tyranny, and I don't know where Gandhi's soul is. It's probably not in heaven because we don't have any evidence of him repenting and confessing Christ as Lord. But be that as it may, the glory of his accomplishments are worthy of honor and praise because he is made in God's image. And God's spirit strove with that man in a real way, in the way that he strove with many of the Greek um, Greek thinkers and many of the uh, people that we admire in the common grace realm. And so we know that eternally speaking, 
uh, they will be held accountable for not going the whole way. But it doesn't diminish the glory of what they are and what we can learn from them. Because again, it's not their truth. It's not their glory. To the extent that you can admire them, it's not their own glory. It's God's Spirit striving with them. Why? I don't know. Why God upholds certain civilizations? Beyond me. Why God lets others uh, just wander in the jungles and never advance beyond primitive technology and uh, cannibalism? I don't know. That's for God to decide. But uh, we should be able to recognize his glory wherever we find it and to learn from it. Um, and uh, again, to, let's, let me wrap up this discussion. Uh, if you want a proof text for this, um, Acts 17. How does God address the Greeks at the Areopagus? The foundation for his address is common grace. He approaches them and says, I see that you're all devout people. I see you're worshiping something. Um, And I know that you know that you depend upon God for your very life. So what's he telling them? You guys have truth. You, you You have real truth. You people, you pagans. And... And Paul doesn't tear that down and say, well, let me tell you how even that truth isn't good enough. He builds on it. He builds on that truth. And he says, you know that in God you live and move and have your being. You know that you're God's offspring. So what is evangelism in that context? Evangelism is, let me tell you the name of the author of truth. Let me get you beyond just the foundation that God has laid in the covenant of Noah and tell you his name. And his name is Jesus. And he is coming to judge you. So repent. Repent today. Times of ignorance are over. And that, we can approach every person we know with that simple message. Are you alive today, you non-Christian? Did you have breakfast today? You can't keep yourself alive if you don't eat. You can't keep yourself alive if you don't breathe. You're dependent on God. Let me tell you his name. He's come to you uh, in the name of in, in Jesus. So, yeah, you had your hand up. Yeah, God's grace is all around us, and, um, and it's just, he's so good. I mean, every, and this just, everything you do, God is in it. Everything you do, everything you touch, um, to the extent that you're not wilting and disintegrated and dying, it's, it's God's grace striving with you. 
So, so don't, this is made to encourage us and, and strengthen us, and it's the platform. It's the, it's the launching pad, if you will, uh, for God's redemptive plan. Um, so with that in mind, let's, let's go into worship. I think we'll probably spend more, a little more time on, I have a couple more things I want to hit on Common Grace before we launch into Abraham. Um, so we'll, we'll pick up with this a little bit next week, and then we'll move into uh, to faith. The class is called Dominion and Faith. We're going to get to faith, okay, because <laughs> faith's really important. So, um, but we've got to get all the pieces there to, um, okay, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that uh, you have not abandoned uh, your image, that you did not uh, leave us uh, as humans uh, in annihilation, but that your plan uh, was to redeem. This was your plan from the beginning. Uh, you knew we would sin, you knew we would fall, and yet you wanted to reveal your grace. You wanted to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of your kindness toward us in Christ. And so we marvel at your plan. It's too, it's too big for us to understand. Uh, there's many who stumble because they refuse to humbly accept uh, that you have the right to control all things and you do all things according to your will. And so thank you for allowing us to experience a little glimmer of your glory and your plan for the universe. Help us to, uh, with this knowledge, uh, not become puffed up with pride, but to do it, uh, to live as thankful creatures, to live as those who uh, hang on your every word, to live as those who truly exist only through your Spirit, striving with us. Um, we pray that we will be filled with the Spirit this morning and that um, you will bless our worship in this hour. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.